Well, Sunday evenings, we're in the book of Genesis, and last time we came to chapter 4, and to these two brothers, Cain and Abel, and the fact that they're brothers is stressed repeatedly. You'll read his brother, your brother, my brother, that occurs seven times. What's more, if you follow the first part of chapter 4, you'll find the narrative alternates. It alternates between Cain and Abel. So we have Cain's birth, then Abel's birth. Then Abel's occupation, Cain's occupation. Cain's offering, Abel's offering. Abel's acceptance, Cain's rejection. Cain's anger, Abel's murder. It's, it's moving between them all the way through. Their, their lives are woven together. Even the way it's written is telling you, here are two brothers, their lives are intertwined. They're bound up together. And yet Cain will murder his brother Abel. Why? Well, the New Testament, 1 John 3, verse 12, answers that question. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because we're told because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Abel's righteous behavior exposed Cain's wicked behavior. And so as far as Cain was concerned, Abel had to be silenced. Abel, we thought about this last time, the the humble, broken-hearted sinner, Abel, the lover and worshipper of God. He knows he's not acceptable to God. He knows as a sinner he deserves to be punished, that blood should be shed, his blood should be shed. And so he comes to God in the way that God himself has appointed. He comes to God on God's terms. He comes with a lamb, an innocent, a sacrifice, a substitute. So that in symbol, that lamb is carrying Abel's sin. And so God's judgment falls upon the innocent, falls upon the lamb. Its blood is shed. Justice is done. And therefore Abel is able to draw near to God. Because an innocent has died the sinner's death. That's God's appointed way. Abel the sinner can draw near to God. In the place that God has appointed. That's Abel. But Cain... Cain is proud, hard-hearted. He refused to bend. He would not bow. He came to God on Cain's terms, because what's good enough for Cain should be good enough for God. He comes with the toil of his hands, his own efforts. There's no sacrifice for sin, because Cain's good should be good enough for God. So no surprise that Cain's offering is therefore rejected. But when God said to him, Cain, put it right, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? So God opens the door and says, put it right. Cain refuses to listen. Here's what God is saying, but he won't humble himself. He finds fault with God. He therefore finds fault with the friend of God, Abel. He finds fault with this humble lover of God, this one who came to God in faith. And so anger is nurtured, and anger becomes bitterness, becomes malice. And Cain murders his brother Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, 
and killed him. It's premeditated murder. The beast of sin that was crouching at the door that God warns him about, that beast now devours Cain. And just like a hard-hearted sinner, he refuses to take the blame. So when God says, well, where's, where's your brother? He says, oh, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then just like a hard-hearted sinner, he protests that God's punishment is too much. It's not fair. Not fair. But God's judgment falls. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So the worker of the ground is now driven from the ground. The farmer becomes a fugitive. And in fact, Cain loses everything he's ever worked for. You should become a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain, nowhere to call home. Nowhere to put down his roots. And for the man who takes his identity from the ground, he's the man who sows the ground. That's where he gets his identity. Cain, the man who sows the ground. But now driven from the ground. For a man who takes his identity from the ground, his punishment, he feels, is unbearable. Verse 13 Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, I, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. It's not fair. Lord, you just can't do this to me. But the way of Cain, no peace, no rest, no home, no hope. He's to be in exile, always on the move, always looking over his shoulder. God reassures him, verse 15, the Lord said to him, No, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what that was, lest any who found him should attack him. So says God, there's going to be no blood feuds. There's going to be no tit for tat, no revenge killings. But Cain is now exiled from where God is known. And therefore, verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, the land literally of wanderings, east of Eden. Okay, well, that's really just to bring us up to speed from last time. So what next for Cain? Well, it's a very modern tale. So please have open in front of you chapter 4 and verses 17 to 26. We have three things to say three points point number one the family of Cain now Cain founds an impressive dynasty verse 17 Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch so it's a new beginning for Cain and the name Enoch it can mean to dedicate it can mean to initiate so there's a sense with this son it's a new life it's a new start a new beginning but actually, it's the same old Cain. Because we read on, verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Same old Cain. Didn't God say to him in verse 12, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth? But it's the same old Cain, because whatever God says, Cain pushes back. And the one who is to be a wanderer is determined to set 
down roots. No more running. So he builds a city dedicated to his son. There's a sense of, well, if God's kicked me out, then I'll make a new world without God. And in generations to come, those living in this city, the city that I have founded, they will bless its, its, its builder and its founder. I'll have made a name for myself. And if God banishes me from Eden, well, I'll leave Eden and I will make a new Eden without God. And now Cain's genealogy, verse 18. It's all these names which if you read out, you never know quite how they're pronounced. But to Enoch was born Irad, to Irad fathered Mehujiel, and Mehujiel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. What are, we, what are we told? Well, we're told now we're seven generations from the first man, seven generations from Adam. And now this individual Lamech takes center stage, verse 19. And Lamech took two wives, the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada can mean ornament, and Zillah can mean shrill or tinkle. So maybe Ada is the beautiful one, and... Uh, Zilla or Silla um, has a beautiful voice. Verse 20. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilla also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. So here we have these, particularly the sons are pointed out. You've got Jabel. And Jabel is the founder of livestock farming. The word livestock there can, car- can cover camels and donkeys and cattle and goats. This is animal husbandry. It means selective breeding, pasturing flocks. It's a nomadic lifestyle. It means food, because it's going to be meat and milk and, and cheese. It means clothing, wool and fur and leather. It therefore means commerce and trade. An expansion as you move to pastures new. So you can see that although Cain is a fugitive, his dynasty, there's a curse, but the curse is being softened. Well, if Jabel is on the move, we're told that Jubal is more settled. Verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So Jubal, he's the founder of those who make musical instruments. There are stringed instruments, the lyre, and there are woodwind instruments, the pipe. He's the entertainer. He's the arty one. And then there's a half-brother, Tubal Cain. So where does his, where does his genius lie? Zillab or Tubal Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So he's the ancestor, he's the founder of industry. And technology, he works with bronze and iron. So there are tools and farming implements and weapons and utensils. See what's going on? What what are we witnessing here? We're seven generations from Adam. The descendants of Cain by now could number thousands, tens of thousands. Some have calculated as many as 125,000. There's no government. It's a patriarchal society. But it's a society of increasing sophistication and expertise. 
Because what we're witnessing here, even in a even in a cursed earth, we're witnessing the flourishing of farming, technology, the arts. There's a division of labor. So some provide food and clothing, some provide technology, and after a hard day's work and they come home, there are some who are providing the entertainment. Of course, there's no planting because this is Cain's dynasty and they've been cursed from the earth, verse 12. But to make the whole thing work, there must therefore be a degree of bartering. And if there's bartering, there's trade. And if there's trade, there's commerce. So Cain may have rebelled, but through his family, the effects of the curse are being softened. Through cooperation, the earth is being subdued. And of course, behind it all, we're witnessing the kindness of God towards a rebellious people, what's sometimes called, Joseph mentioned this morning, what's sometimes called common grace. As God is behind all of this. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. He's actively good to these rebels. And his mercy is over all that he has made. So what are we learning? So Cain's family is hugely successful. There's progress, civilization, culture. It's a very modern tale. But of course, it's not the whole story. So look at verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, and now we find out what he said. Is it a poem? Is it a song? Is a husband speaking to his wives, maybe singing to his wives? Would you describe it as romantic? Would it be on Spotify's Valentine's playlist? What do you think? Lamech said to his wives, verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. So even before we get to hear what he's got to say, we already know what sort of man this is. It's interesting, Eve was given to Adam. It says that. She was given to Adam. But, verse 19, Lamech, takes two wives. We've been told something about the man. He's a taker. He's a taker. And as his wives sit there, whether they're, they're under sufferance or willingly, so he boasts. And there's menace in his voice. This is a man who's, a, who's accustomed to dominating people, dominating his wives, dominating those around him, controlling people. He says, listen to me. Mark my words. Don't you interrupt me. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to me. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Says Lamech, anyone who touches me, even if he's a kid, I'll kill him. Because that's just what I've done. Because you don't mess with Lamech. Lamech's the boss. Verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If God promised to avenge Cain sevenfold, who needs God? God's revenge is as nothing compared to Lamech's. My vengeance is seventy-sevenfold. So Lamech gloats over his reputation for brutality. He says, you touch me, whoever you are, I'll tear you to shreds. I don't need God to look after me. 
I can take care of myself. Proud, arrogant, violent, Lamech. That avalanche that began with Adam's sin, Adam's rebellion. After seven generations, that avalanche has picked up speed, hasn't it? And momentum. It's getting faster and faster. Where will it end? The family of Cain. Point number two. A very modern tale. So what's all this about? You know, okay, fine. Early history. What's it about? Well, verses 70 to 24 explain the enigma that is man. Now, who can make sense of human beings? We are capable of the extraordinary. We multiply, we fill the earth, we subdue it. We found cities, we tame the animals, we mine the ground, we press the creation into our service. We're capable of breathtaking advances in science and medicine and technology. We have a genius for art, literature, music. We're capable of singing songs that give expression to every emotion of the human spirit. We write love songs. And yet we're capable of unspeakable greed and brutality and violence and destruction. Jabel, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, Lamech, when you look at them, you have to say, that's us. That's us in microcosm. That's the human race. So the Nazis murder in their millions and then sit down to enjoy Beethoven. Pol Pot, leader of Cambodia, makes a new start. Let's return the country to the soil, to the ground. Let's start all over again. Let's call it year zero. And he kills two million of his own people. The First World War. Europe had enjoyed nearly a hundred years of peace and prosperity and progress. There was constitutional government, more or less a free press, the rule of law, the flourishing of of the arts and of science. And then there's five weeks, five weeks of crisis in 1914, followed by four years of killing leaving 16 million dead and torturing the emotional lives of many, many more. And when the war to end all wars is over, it sows the seeds for the next conflict where there'll be four times the slaughter. And after the First World War, there's a certain corporal, Adolf Hitler, and he writes this, it cannot be that two million Germans have fallen in vain. No, we do not pardon. We demand vengeance. It's a line straight out of Lamech, isn't it? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, the Lamech's is 77-fold. There must be vengeance. You see what it's saying? This is man. This is the explanation of who we are. Man is half God, half beast. And you don't have to look in the past. Just look around you, 21st century. Such advances. The internet, mobile phones, social media, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, electric cars, 3D printers. 
touch screens, cancer therapies, and we could go on and on and on. And we could also talk about knife crime, family breakdown, rape, suicide, corruption, injustice, the pornification of our young people and our culture, the murder of the unborn, war in Ukraine... Who can make sense of the human race? You read chapter 4, and here's the explanation. The family of Cain is a very modern tale, isn't it? Because we are half God. Cain could never escape what he was. He was made in God's image. So he founds a city a lasting monument, a name that endures. Why? Because, says the Bible, eternity is bound up in our hearts. And Cain does believe in a better world, even if it's a world without God, a new Eden to regain the one that was lost. And we all have that sense, don't we? This world is not what it's supposed to be. There should be something better. And his family, all those godlike achievements. They're creating, designing, building. There are things of beauty and wonder and joy. And they're ruling over the works of their hands. Because all of that is made, or is that, all of that is because we're made in God's image. But that's not the whole picture, is it? Because of sin, because we're exiles, because we're far from God. That image of God in us is a broken image. It's been defaced. It's been defiled. We might be half God, but we're half beast. Lamech, the big man, who rules over all, but he can't rule over himself. And Cain, his own brother, his own brother, not because his brother was evil, but because his brother was good. His brother never did him any wrong. But he can't bear his brother. And there's revenge and murder in his heart and sin crouching at the door. And he has no power over that sin. It devours him and he sheds his brother's blood. Do you see, who are we? Why is this world as it is? It's because like Cain and Cain's descendants, we've rebelled against God. We've gone away from the presence of God. We sought to forge a new world without God. And we're stiff-necked sinners. Think about it. You can see, you can read it in your own heart, your own life. Cain was an exile. We're all exiles. We're all looking for a homeland. That's why you're restless. That's why you'll move on all the time looking for something better, looking for something more. It's because you're in exile. And Cain was insecure. He's always looking over his shoulder. That's why you're insecure. You all have a sense. I have a sense of somebody following me. It's a preview of judgment day. When God will catch up with me. Cain put God behind him. That's why I put God out of my thoughts. And if he comes into my thoughts, I chase him away. Cain wants to make a name for himself. He founds a city. That's why in this world, I want to make a name for myself. I have ambition. I want to achieve something. I want to put my stamp not on the sand, but upon the adamant. 
so I'm remembered. And Cain's descendants, they softened the curse. They made life bearable. That's what we do all the time. We're softening. We keep ourselves busy. We amuse ourselves. But the fact is, often we live our lives on the surface. And then every now and again we go down deeper and we say, all that blood, sweat and tears, what's it for? Cain. And his descendants were sinners. That's what I am. Have you never been bitter, angry, vengeful, like Cain, like Lamech? Have you never been proud, boastful? People have had to sit there while you've told them how great you are, how you're better than others. Have you ever come to God as a sinner, trusting in a lamb slain for your sin? No? Well, then you're, then you're doing exactly what Cain did. Coming to God on your own terms. Have you never been ruled by choices, motives, where God has got no part to play at all? doesn't figure at all. Because I don't love God. And it's not loving my neighbor as myself. My, na- my neighbor needs to get out of the way. Do you see? Do you see what's going on? This is a microcosm of what we are and what we've become. Cain. And the world's a mess because I'm a mess. And we have to say this as well. We've sometimes acted the lie for so long we've come to believe the lie. And I don't really believe that I'm half beast. But I am. We're made in God's image, but we've become half beast. We've fallen. And that's why the family of Cain unlocks the enigma that is man. It's a very modern tale. Think of a beautiful temple that's now in ruins. You walk around the temple and you see something of the glory, can't you? You see what it was. Even though it's a ruin, there's, there's a magnificence about it. There's a, there's a grandeur, there's a wonder. You wonder what it used to be like when it was first made. What was this place like? But it's a ruin. And the glory has departed. And says the Bible, we are a ruin of the temple we once were. We were made in God's image. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But we walked out on God. And yes, there are echoes of our former greatness. Where once we radiated with the glory of God. But the glory has departed. And that's why we don't know who we are, or why we're here, or how it all fits together, or how we arrived at this point. But it's because we're a temple in ruins. You can still see something of the glory. We're half gods. But it's a ruin. We're half beast, ruled over by sin, destined to a life, says the Bible, of wickedness and death and then the miseries of hell.
So we close with this, number three. A new hope. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. A new son, Seth. Do you remember the promise in the garden? We thought about this at length when we were in Genesis chapter 3. God speaks to Satan, the great architect of this rebellion. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Someone is coming. He'll be the offspring of the woman. He will be a champion, a savior who will crush Satan's head. He'll defeat him. And at great cost to himself, he'll rescue a ruined humanity and put everything right. He'll make a way back to God, a way back to the garden. But he can't be Abel. And he can't be Cain. But he thinks maybe it'll be Seth. A new hope. Well, of course, it won't be Seth, but the promise of a saviour with Seth has taken a great leap forward. Verse 26, to Seth also was born, sorry, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Something is going on. Parallel with all the tragedy and heartache of Cain's descendants, the descendants of Seth will seek after the true God. And it's interesting the way it's put. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you'll see their Lord is in capital letters because it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's personal name, or you might call it God's salvation name. It's the God who keeps his promises. So in spite of everything that's gone wrong, the line of Seth believe that God will carry out his saving program. They believe that God will keep his promise of a coming saviour. It's a new hope. The first Star Wars film was called A New Hope because when all seemed lost and the Dark Lord had taken control, it wasn't the end. It was a new hope. Well, Star Wars and all those other stories, they all borrowed that, didn't they? They all borrowed the story from the real story, the true story, the original story, the story in the Bible. That's why all those other stories, because they're echoes of the true story, they resonate. We like them. We're all looking for a champion who will overthrow the darkness and bring us to a better world, a world of light and life and love. But here they are. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So did God keep his promise? God himself stepped into our world. He never ceased to be God, but he became what he had not been. He became a man. And Jesus is his name. And when Jesus came, there was nothing of Cain in him. 
He really did love God with all his heart. He loved his neighbor as himself. And he was in this world the one true innocent. But wicked men took him and nailed him to a cross. It was really Cain and Abel writ large. Only when Jesus' blood flowed and splashed on the ground and the ground soaked up his blood, unlike Abel's blood, Jesus' blood didn't cry out for condemnation. It didn't cry out for judgment upon the guilty. When his blood flowed, it called for peace, pardon, forgiveness. Do you see? Like Abel's lamb, Jesus was the real lamb. The lamb everyone was waiting for. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And my sin was laid on Jesus. And though he is innocent, without sin, he was treated as the guilty. He took the blame. So the punishment due to me for what I've done, for my offenses, for my rebellion, that punishment fell upon Jesus. And there on the cross, justice was done. There on the cross, he was condemned in my place. And not just my place, in the place of every sinner who humbles himself, humbles herself, And comes to Jesus Christ. But then there's no condemnation. Because condemnation has fallen upon him. And they don't perish. Actually the promise is of everlasting life. Life that begins now. And reaches its fullness. In the age to come. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish. But have eternal life. We have it in our closing hymn. Later we'll sing it. When every unclean thought and every sinful deed was scourged upon his back and hammered through his feet, the innocent is cursed, the guilty are released, the punishment of God on God has brought me peace. So many of you know that. but you've yet to come to Jesus Christ. I wonder if the problem is we don't think we're actually that bad, really. You know? After all, with the the Jables and the Jubals and the Tubal Canes of this world, things aren't altogether bad, are they? I mean, there's a sense in which things can only get better. But you see, when I come to the cross... When I see that broken body, that shed blood, when I witness the drops of his agony, when I see the one true innocent, the only one who ever did do good, always good, every good, when I see him suffering as no one has ever suffered, under the wrath of God, becoming the greatest sufferer in the universe, and when I hear that cry ring out from the cross, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of the damned in hell. When I look at the cross, it's then that I see myself. Because that's what I deserve. That's who I am. That's how God treats rebels. That is God's estimation of me. And if I really, really, really see that, if I look, look, look to the cross, it will shatter all my illusions. That so I'm not quite so bad. That maybe things will get better. And I'll see that that's how God punishes sin. And that's how I should be punished. Bearing an infinite weight of wrath for an infinity, an eternity. Will I be able to bear that? No, I'll cry like Cain. My punishment is greater than I can bear. That's what I need to do. Don't stand at a distance and say, I know the gospel's true, but things aren't so bad. Look at the cross. That's how God punishes sin. That's how God punishes sinners. And yet, and yet when I look to Jesus, it doesn't drag me down. It's not depressing. It's heartbreaking. But it doesn't drag me down because it's then when I look at the cross that I begin to see the glories of God's love. That Jesus is suffering there for me. The infinite son bearing the infinite punishment. And I begin to understand you did that for me. This is not the God of the big stick. This is not the God of some, he's not some celestial lamech. This is the God who kept his promise at infinite cost to himself, who sent his son into this world to shed his blood to save people like me from sin and death and hell. And as I look at that cross, and he hangs there with arms stretched out wide, they're stretched out wide to save. This is not my enemy to be avoided. This is the great friend, the only friend, the truest friend I ever had. And if their arms stretched out in welcome, their arms stretch out beckoning, saying, come, come, beckoning you, beckoning you to return. A new hope. I don't, know, I don't know how many times some of you have heard this gospel. But maybe tonight, this is the night he's waiting for you to return to him. For you, the exile, always looking for something, always moving on. You, who's always looking over your shoulder, living an insecure life, full of worries and fears. You, always looking to make a mark in this world. Because life seems so brief and so passing and I'll soon be gone. He's calling to you, the exile, to come home 
to come to him. So come to Jesus. So will you come? Will you come to Christ? You can be, a, you can be like Cain. You can keep moving. Make your way in the world. You might achieve much. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But in the end, you'll be utterly lost in hell. You've lost everything. Or you can be like Seth and his descendants. And you can do what you've never done. But tonight you can. And that's to call on the name of the Lord. To call on his name. You know what that means. Someone's on the other side of the street. I can go, hey! And they might turn around and look at me. Or I can call them by name. It's personal. It's me and them. I'm calling to them. You can call on the name of the Lord. And the gospel is beautiful. It's so simple. Are you a sinner? Yes. Did Jesus die on the cross to save condemned sinners? Yes. So you come and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. But Jesus died on that cross to save messed up sinners. So Lord, save me. And the Lord who kept his promise in the sending of a Savior still keeps his promises that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we can't be persuaded into the kingdom. We can't with our own eyes see. We can't with our own ears hear. But we pray that by your Spirit, that you would draw us irresistibly. Grant us the grace to bow the knee, to see a welcome, to see a beckoning Savior. And draw us, even this night we pray, into the arms of love. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.